think that is unbelievable. I mean, I am, that, that short little bumper, just the message of that, to me, if we can grab hold of that today, oh, man, if we can live into that. So thank you for ministering to each and every one of us. You know, as we've mentioned a few times already this Sunday, it is Pentecost Sunday. It follows about 40 or 50 days after the resurrection of Jesus. So it's fitting that you and I are looking at how to lead more like Jesus because walking in the Spirit, bearing the fruit of the Spirit, uh, Jesus lived a Spirit-filled life, being filled with the Spirit, whether it's baptism, we're going to look at in a second, but you know, just listening to the Father, being led by the Spirit um, is absolutely pivotal because in the time and season in which you and I live, we have to be mindful that the Holy Spirit is not the only influencing Spirit in and around our hearts and lives. And so let's dive right in from ages 12 to 30. When we look at the life of Jesus, we can see some essential ingredients that Jesus is growing uh, with God, and he's also, in his human, he's growing with God, but he's also growing with one another. And so it says this in Luke 2, verses 52, when Lori and I tag-teamed a bit on this and preached uh, a season ago, that Jesus increased, he grew in wisdom and stature and in favor with God and then with his fellow humans. And so we see that from ages 12 to 30, Jesus is growing as a leader. So we can see he's growing in influence. He's growing in wisdom. He's engaging all these things. But it's really, that's, that's all we get. We don't really see anything other than there. And then at 30, Jesus is baptized. And the affection of his father is pronounced over his life. That is his beloved son in whom he's well pleased. And then Jesus, who is then full of the Holy Spirit, is then led by that same Holy Spirit into the wilderness, which is an amazing message in and of itself, which you don't have time for today, that Jesus is led by the Spirit into the wilderness, and then he is tempted, he is tempted unsuccessfully by Satan. You know, it's really important to understand this at the pivotal point, even in our talk today, that the enemy will always try to thwart something before God moves. The, the enemy will always try to thwart something on an individual level, on a family level, even on a generational level, before God begins to move. The enemy is not all-knowing, but he knows the signs and he can see when God's about to do something. He's about to do something in your life, in your family, in a relationship, or even in a generation or intergenerationally. He's seen some stuff before. Before, so he can see the signs around it. Now here's the question that I want to dive in on today. When did Jesus become a leader? You know, the, idea, the answer is identical for Jesus as it is for every single one of us. And it is here. Is you and I become leaders when someone chooses to follow you. When how you live your life, what you say and what you do has influence on what they say and what they do. Now that can be positionally based. You're a boss, you're a parent, you're a CEO, you own the company, you're, you know, you're, a, you're the head of the home, whatever it happens to be. That can be positionally based or it can be permission based. Some of us, we give influence to people even on social media. We allow them to influence us to how they live their life, what they say and what they do and what they buy and what they wear. We allow that to influence our hearts and lives. We perhaps look to other individuals, maybe we don't even know, for influence. So again, leadership is this place that when somebody chooses to follow you, or when how you live and what you say, when it influences their life, this is this moment where you begin to take a leadership position in somebody else's heart. Now, notice I didn't ask this question, which is, how was Jesus made into a leader? Well, 
from, again, from ages 12 to 30, even before that, we can see some little glimpses of leadership, but that is a shadow-making process. That is a process, again, that we don't really get a lot of insight into the life of Jesus. But we do see him step into leadership the moment he calls someone and then they choose to follow him. So I guess we could simply say this, that every single one of us become leaders when somebody else willingly follows us. When you have your first follower, when someone says, yeah, I'll follow you. I I like where you're going. I I like how you're living. Would you help me understand that? How did you get a breakthrough there? This is all the language of mentoring, but also just of leadership. Think about it. If Jesus would have sinned in those first 30 years, he would have disqualified himself from leading. If he would have faltered under the temptation of the enemy in the wilderness, he would have disqualified himself. And this is pivotal because, being for, because formation and being forged are constants in our lives. Formation and being forged are constants. They are not just in the spotlight seasons. They happen in the shadow seasons. It's not again. So the question I didn't ask is, well, how was Jesus made into the leader that he was? Again, that happened throughout every day of his life, all throughout his life. But when did Jesus step into leadership? That's what we're looking at today. And that was the moment where we're going to read right now. In Matthew chapter 4, verses 18 to 22, it says, While walking by the Sea of Galilee, he saw, really important words. If you have your Bible, I would highlight those two words. Jesus sees them. He sees two brothers, Simon, who is called Peter. So there's his first follower, okay? It's amazing. Simon, who is called Peter, and Andrew, his brother, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And he said to them, follow me. In other words, this is where I'm going. You follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. It says, immediately they left their nets and followed him. And going on from there, he saw two other brothers, James the son of Zebedee and John his brother, in the boat with Zebedee, their father, mending their nets. And he called them. And immediately, these two other brothers left their boat, and they left their father, and they followed him. And so those first followers are absolutely critical. I want you to think about the names that we've just read here of Simon and Andrew and James and John. These actually become pretty significant individuals in the next three and a half years, but also as you look forward into the early church, Jesus' first followers here are pretty significant individuals. Sure, they're going to go through a lot. They're going to make a lot of mistakes. But who chooses to follow you is of ultimate significance. And this is what I want you to grab hold of today. Because for me, I think it's so good. So inspiring. And as we describe it, I pray that it even makes your heart at home begin to burn a little bit. For us as a church to be filled with this type of leadership. Here's what is amazing. It says this, Jesus sees them before they see him. Jesus sees Peter or Simon and Andrew, he sees them before they see him. And church, we need to be leaders that see before others see and not try to railroad it on them. What Jesus saw in them in this moment is so critical. It's going to be three and a half years of formation in their lives, and they're still going to get lots wrong. And then after that, even after Jesus dies and and rises from the dead, ascends to heaven, before he does, he says, wait, 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 wait. It's not enough that you have all of that. You need to be filled with the Holy Spirit. And who stands up on this day of Pentecost that we're talking about today? It's his first follower. It's Peter. He stands up 
up and begins to preach the gospel. 3,000 are added to the church and the church is birthed in the midst of the marketplace and it kind of pushes out from there. And that is the epicenter of how the gospel moves from there to even Ottawa, Canada or Cornwall or Canada. It's an incredible story that you and I are absolutely engaged in. But it starts with a leader named Jesus who sees them before they see him. You know, so much today of leadership is framed by look at me type behavior. I love how Christine Cain says this. We now have a generation of Christians who know how to market themselves, but they themselves have not paid the price to be marked by God for such a time as this. Oh, we know how to brag and we know how to get clout and we know how to show, but do, how, do we know how to be forged in the shadow season so that when we step into the season that we have the patience to see what others don't see. It is not hard in this season to see what is wrong. It's not difficult to see what needs to change. It's not even complex to see that people can't get it right, all the things right. That's not hard to see. But do you have eyes of the Spirit to see not just what is, but what could be? Do, you have, do we have eyes when we look at one another, when we look at our different ethnicities or our different genders, even our different generations, do we only see what's wrong in generations? Or do we have eyes to see? Holy Spirit, would you touch our eyes so that we could see not just what is, but how and what it is you want to do? See, Jesus wasn't the type of leader who just was interested in fame and marketing himself. No, no, many times he broke every law of marketing, every law of leadership. At the height of momentum, he'd wander off by himself to be with his father. Because for him, he knew the source of how it is not just to see what's going on, but to see, God, what is it that you're doing? That's my primary vision. Because, God, if I can see what you're doing, then I can see what you're doing. But if all I can see is what's happening, then I can't see who you are and what you're desiring to do. Jesus didn't complete his leadership of the 12 disciples by washing their feet alone. Yes, he did that. But it wasn't some object lesson Jesus was a servant leader the entire time. It wasn't something that he did randomly at the end of his ministry at the Last Supper with them, just kind of like as this footnote. Yes, it was a moment and it was powerful, but it was an extension of who he is and it was an extension of how he had been leading them the past three and a half years and how through the power of the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit would lead them and lead us today. We lead others well when we are looking to see how, not if, God can use their lives in this minute, in this moment. Who do you need to ask God for in this minute? God, would you give me eyes to see what you're doing? Because all I can see is them driving me nuts. All I can see is what they're not. All I can see is what they did. God, would you give me eyes to see? Who do you need to pray for personally right now? Lord, would you give me eyes to see? Maybe before they can see. I am grateful for parents. I am grateful for a generation that saw something in me before I saw it in myself, who were patient for, with me to ask some dumb questions, to run and to wander a little bit, only to know that really I was tethered to Christ, that the Holy Spirit was with me everywhere that I felt that I ran to get away from. He just showed up again and again and again. 
takes great patience to let someone run. It takes great patience. A great fisherman knows how when a fish is hooked to let it, you know, kind of flip and flop until it tires itself out and then pulls it into the boat. It takes great patience. But that's what Jesus did for me. And that's what Jesus is doing with some of your kids, some of your grandkids, some people in your lives. They may be wandering, but they're not lost. God knows exactly where they are. The second thing that we can see that Jesus did that you and I need to emulate is that Jesus invites these individuals, his disciples, and then others into an intentional process. In the day of Jesus, every rabbi had something called a yoke. A yoke would have been a heavy beam that would have been placed upon an ox where they were actually treading out the grain. And they had different sized beams for different strength of oxen. And so every single rabbi had this, this, this yoke. That's what it was called, this yoke that went on your shoulders. So again, a yoke was a way in which, according to the Torah, a particular, a particular rabbi saw the world and saw how we should live in the world. And so just like today, some people see it this way and some people see it this way and some people see it this way. Different perspectives. We all see the same thing, but we see it from different perspectives, the Bible just calls those yokes. And so every one of us live in a time where there are yokes being thrown out. Hey, this is the way to flourish in the world. Self-identification is the way in which you flourish, that your thoughts and your feelings, they are the ultimate thing in your life. And then you grab the gospel that says, actually, no, that's not true. It doesn't deny your thoughts. It doesn't deny your feelings, but says those things shouldn't be ultimate. God should be ultimate. God's word should be ultimate because they are greater than those things. Those are two different yokes. You can't pull both of them onto your shoulders. It won't work. Only one. So when Jesus says to me, come, all you who are weary and heavy laden, take my yoke upon you and learn from me. He's basically saying, inviting you and I, this is the way the world is, and this is the way we are to live into the world. And so follow me was an invitation. It was an invitation not just to walk around, but to see what he's doing. Follow me was this invitation. If you follow me, if you say what I say and do what I do and model after me, Jesus is saying to them, if you take my yoke upon your shoulders, if you follow me, then here's what I'll do. I will make you fishers of men. I, right now you know how to fish for fish, but I'm going to teach you how to fish for eternity. I'm going to teach you how to fish for destinies. I'm going to teach you how to not just see the sea, not just see the fish, not just to know where they are. I am going to teach you how to do something on a grander scale. I'm not going to teach you something that you have no experience with, but I'm going to elevate it again from dollars to destinies. I'm going to elevate it from fish to humanity. I'm going to elevate it from just earthly to eternal. I'm going to show you something of great significance, but it's going to take you following me. This is what Jesus said. Because Jesus not only sees who we are today, he sees who we will become tomorrow. And they all have a choice to accept or reject. And I love how the invitation of Jesus is an act of love. It is an act of service. Jesus, again, he extends this invitation to them in a way that they could understand. As I said just a moment ago, I'll make you fishers of men. That's, they didn't understand probably the men part of it. And what does that mean? But they knew what it is to be fishing. I love how Jesus relates and connects with us. Again, this is the servant heart of Jesus, not just at the Last Supper. Jesus is a servant leader all the way through. Jesus knows that his leadership starts with their fellowship. In other words, if they don't start to follow, we can't take them anywhere. That that first point of connection is so vital. Do you remember when we used to go out to eat together? Do you remember? Like, I vaguely remember in years gone by, we used to be able to gather at places 
and share a meal. I remember vaguely what it is to go out. But I also remember this. I also remember gathering with a group of people, trying to decide where to go out. I don't miss that conversation at all. Right? I don't know if you've ever experienced it, but literally when people would gather, here's what usually took. Someone said, hey, I think we should go here. That was powerful. But you know what actually created momentum? was the first follower, the first person to go, ooh, I want to go there too. They are the one that created momentum. And so these first followers saying to Jesus, yeah, I'll take your invitation. I will follow you. Now Jesus steps into a place of leadership and they begin to follow. It's an amazing thing. There's a third thing or a letter C that I would put here that I think is extraordinary is that Jesus in this moment does something powerful. He assumes all the risk of rejection, a hundred percent of it. In fact, in this story, there are two types of rejection that you and I see Jesus deals with in his life again and again and again. Because like Brandon was saying in our intro, and like you and I experience, leadership isn't for the faint of heart. Whether it is the privilege of leading a spouse, whether it is the privilege of leading a child, whether it's the privilege of influencing somebody on social media, whether it's the privilege of a position at work, wherever you find or experience leadership, here's what's true. Some of you have leadership and influence over people that you don't even know they're watching. You don't even know they're looking. You don't even know they're paying attention at all. I think it's going to be extraordinary when you and I get to heaven one, guy, one day and God shows us how he used our lives in its entirety. And there are going to be segments of our lives that God was using our lives and we had no idea. We had no idea that when we were going through that, there was an audience watching. That there may have been a small group that was watching or a single individual who was watching. How are they going to handle that? What are they going to do? At work, perhaps, when everyone's being critical of the boss, there may be, you may have an audience that you don't know that perhaps you shared with the gospel. And again, this isn't to put a yoke of perfection upon your shoulders, but it sure is to put a yoke of humility. Jesus assumes all the risk of rejection and every leader assumes all the risk of rejection today. Two types of rejection. The first is this, the personal rejection of one who says no. Simon and Andrew and James and John could have said no. Je you know, follow me. No, not so much. Jesus assumes all the risk. Now you might be saying in this moment, well, come on, who would say no to Jesus? And I, my response to you would be, have you read the gospels and have you seen humanity today? Lots of people say no to Jesus. But Jesus never stops knocking. He always assumes the risk. Why? Because that's how valuable your life is. For you and I, we'll try and we'll try and we'll try and maybe try again and maybe try one more time. But for Jesus, he is faithful. He is persistent. I want you to know, again, whether it is your kids or your grandkids or a spouse or someone that you love who is wandering, who maybe once knew, who has once had their heart open to God, but now is in a different season and you're despondent. I want you to know that wherever you're despondent, God is remaining faithful, that he's knocking, that he's as close as the mention of his name, that he is simply turning their heart one degree away from them, opening their hearts to God, and he will absolutely be there. He is faithful. He assumes all the risk, 100% of the risk. 
As we look through the Gospels, we can see religious leaders reject Jesus. The rich young ruler rejects Jesus. Lots of people said no to Jesus then and you know, wander from, from worship. to you know, they, they wander away. And billions are saying no to him today. That's why, church, we pray. That's why, church, we're crying out for a move of God. So that every single person in Cornwall, in Canada, in the greater Ottawa region, including Gatineau, that every single one in this region may come to a loving relationship to know who God is. The moment you and I gave our lives to Jesus. It's not about us. It is about God's glory and it's about others coming into the kingdom, others knowing Jesus. And for that to happen, you and I do not need to be led by the spirit of the world because it won't win anyone. We need to be led by the same Holy Spirit of God, filled by the same Holy Spirit of God to see and to assume this risk of sharing the gospel, of praying for others, of serving others, of being the leader, of leading like Jesus. Because servant-based leadership always first assumes this risk. But there's another rejection that we see in this story. And it is this. It is the courageous risk of being misunderstood when, for the right reasons, you reject another. I don't mean reject them as a person. I don't mean devalue them or put them down. What I mean is that when you know that what their purpose is, is not aligned perhaps with what God's purpose is. When you have some insight there. You know, as a leader, you have to make the best decision, which can sometimes be a hard decision for somebody else. In the story, we've touched on Simon and Andrew and James and John, but there's somebody else in the story. If you slow down and you read it again on that day, Jesus being led by the Spirit to pick his disciples. He picks Simon and Andrew and James and John. But there's a father named Zebedee sitting in the boat. They're all called to follow Jesus, but not Zebedee. He's sitting there mending the nets with his sons. They're all bending the nets. Think about Zebedee. They get up. I'm sure as a father, he's absolutely proud that now they're beginning to follow Jesus. But he's got to grieve a little bit. These are my sons who I'm in business with. This isn't the story of how I saw this going. On a pure temporal level, a level, here he is mending the nets with his sons, and then they leave, and he's got to mend all the nets by himself. There's always things when someone else is engaging this moment, but Jesus knows that Zebedee has a purpose, but his purpose isn't to be in the twelve. And so he, even Jesus leans into this, emo- and then this moment. You say, well, is this the only time that Jesus does this? And the answer is No. Again and again and again, he would heal this, an individual and they'd say, I want to follow you. I want to be in your inner 12. And he'd go, no, you need to go back to your home and declare what I've done for you. He wasn't rejecting them at all, but he was aligning them to the purpose that God had for them. As we read through the Gospels, you'll see time and time again, people wanting to be a part again of the inner 12. But in love, Jesus says, no, he says, this is what I have for you to do. Jesus still invites them to live into the gospel, to live into the kingdom, just in a different context. Now, Jesus did this perfectly, and we do this imperfectly. Yet best when we too are in relationship with the Holy Spirit. You see, following the Holy Spirit, following the leading of the Holy Spirit, the example of Jesus, if we can do this, then together, We will lead humbly. We will lead others with humility. And here's a few things that we'll know. 
We'll know when to say yes and when to say no. When we follow the leading of the Holy Spirit and the example of Jesus, sometimes we'll need to have courage as leaders, whether again it's with our kids or whether it is at work or whatever context you find yourself in. Sometimes you have to make a judgment call which leaves you vulnerable to being judged. A few years ago, a number of years ago now, I was speaking with a pastor. And as the pastor was sharing with me, I couldn't help, I couldn't shake this. It wasn't a thus say at the Lord at all, because I think it's very, it's dangerous to give a thus say at the Lord, because then if it's wrong, you're in the weeds big time. But even if it's just a little bit off, it's like now they got to break up with God, not just the word. So even for me, if I'm feeling a prompting, what I love to say to people is like, I think that the Lord may be around this. I think that God may be speaking somewhere in this. Like I try to hedge it, not like probably because I don't have that full gift of prophecy. I'm not a prophet at all. They speak with a lot more clarity. But I was speaking with this pastor and this pastor was saying to me these things. He was, they were saying like, I'm really struggling in, in my Bible reading. I, I'm really struggling in prayer. I'm really struggling in, in, in being generous. I'm really struggling in, in evangelism. And as they were just sharing and they were just being honest and, and, and genuine, and I wouldn't want to shame them at all whatsoever, but there comes a moment where you got to lean in a little bit and go, are you, are you, are you sure that in this season that you should be a pastor? Are, are you sure? Because it's not, it's not just authenticity that's a value. It's also having a place of authority that it's pretty hard to lead people when you're not doing the very basic disciplines that you need to be leading people to do, that you need to be loving people to do. They've got to be looking to see this stuff because, again, leadership is not just about trying to put on a show or a performance. People can figure that out. You can fail, fool people for a while, but there's got to be something beyond authenticity. There's got to be some authority here. And so sometimes you got to make a judgment call, which, you know, keeps, leaves you vulnerable to being judged. I, do, I wish I could tell you the conversation went well. I did it in love. I did it super soft. I didn't do it angry. I didn't do it judgmental at all, but it didn't go very well. And uh, I won't tell you the end of the story, but it's not fantastic. You know, taking shots from others. Sometimes as leaders, we got to take shots from others, keeping our mouth shut to preserve the other person or preserve what God might do down the road. So the only posture to leading others well is being a servant leader. We can't see others if we're only looking at ourselves. We won't invite others if we have no vision of who they can be. And this is true individually, but it's also true generationally. We won't love others if we, are, with our hearts, are wrapped up in making everybody else happy. It's really hard to simultaneously please God and please everyone else. Usually everyone else wins over God. And so one final element, as today again, for the umpteenth time, is Pentecost Sunday. It's important that we look at how Jesus led. But if we try to lead like Jesus without being full and continually filled with the Spirit, we are going to find ourselves absolutely frustrated. And here's why. Because in life, we leak. We leak love. We leak vision. We leak. We can sometimes see somebody 
And then there's hurt and offense and wounding and all of those things cause things to pull out of our lives. We do not just need to be filled with the Holy Spirit once. We need a constant infilling of the Holy Spirit to lead like Jesus. Because the Holy Spirit isn't merely a force, a feeling, or an experience. The Holy Spirit is the third person of the Trinity. The Holy Spirit is God. You know, growing up, I had a great friend, and his name was Mike. But life took us different directions, and I haven't seen him in about 25 years. Nothing bad at all happened. Nothing at all. Just life. Life just, we were friends, great friends for a season. But then life took us in completely different directions. You know, growing up, and still today, I have another great friend, and his name is Jason. And we've remained great friends for the last 25 years. And I love how Dr. Glenn Packiam says, taking those two experiences, says this. Don't think of the infilling of the Holy Spirit as an event. It is an ongoing relationship. We know there's a difference between saying you had a friend, in this example, 25 years ago, and that you have been great friends for 25 years. So too, there is a big difference with saying you were filled with the Spirit versus saying, I am being filled by the Spirit. A life relationship or a relationship with the Holy Spirit shouldn't be one that is only defined by a memory or an experience or speaking with the gift of tongues. As incredible as all of those things are and as this gift is, it shouldn't be defined exclusively there. That is vital. But it should not just be a memory. Oh yeah, 15 years ago, 10 years ago, 9 years ago. It shouldn't be that. It should not be a memory. It should be a memorable life, day in and day out. An obedient life in following Jesus. The 120 in the upper room didn't merely have ecstatic experience with power. Though they absolutely experienced something powerful, they were filled with the Spirit. They spoke in tongues as we see in Acts chapter 2. But from that moment, they didn't just have an experience that stayed in the upper room. When we understand Pentecost, it doesn't stay in the room. It doesn't stay all about us. It pushes out into the marketplace. Why? Because again, the same spirit who led Jesus, who enabled Jesus to see others differently, the same Holy Spirit that led Jesus is the same Holy Spirit that wants to absolutely fill our lives and help us live, love, and lead lives like Jesus. Again, but from that moment, you see the 120 filled with urgency, full and consistently being filled. They preached the gospel. They planted churches. They solved problems. They failed and were restored. They worked through doctrinal differences and they bore the fruit of a life filled in relationship with the Holy Spirit. Life centered today. I know we're all at home. Gosh, I wish that we could gather, but I know that the Holy Spirit is not bound by buildings and these types of blocks. I know we're all at home, but we need, 
We need a fresh infilling of the Holy Spirit because when I look at the book of Acts, I can see a church filled with Jews and Gentiles, men and women, young and mature, leadership and fellowship, filled with problems but spirit-led solutions, marginalized politically though they were, yes, but they knew who they were in Christ powerfully. Church, we got it backwards. We don't need political power. We need Christ-based positional understanding of who we are that supersedes those things. They knew that they couldn't simultaneously feed their flesh and walk in the Spirit, that they could only pick one yoke upon them. And church, our baptism in Jesus, our baptism in the Holy Spirit must be stronger than our political, our pandemic, our generations, our gender, our ethnicity, our sexual orientation perspectives. Our baptism in Jesus must be our oneship. Our baptism in the Spirit has to be greater than all these things. Yes, we need to talk about all these things. They're significant and they have doctrinal engagements and things that, yes, I understand all that, but our baptism is greater than these things. Church, we need a timeless touch of the third person of the Trinity. We need a fresh infilling of the Holy Spirit to walk in the Spirit, to bear the fruit of the Spirit, to use the gifts of the Spirit, to see the one true gospel of Jesus empowered by the Spirit in every church, in every life group, in every home campus, in every follower of Jesus, in every family. Because make no mistake, the Holy Spirit isn't the only Spirit active today. We need more followers of Jesus to care less about being right and to care more about being the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus. We need more followers of Jesus filled with the Holy Spirit to care more about devotion to Christ than they do deconstruction of this or that. We need leaders to stop seeing the church as an audience and to see it once again as an army. And when I use the word army, I don't mean culture war. I don't mean an army against. I mean an army rooted in Christ for Christ and serving like Christ with a heart of love to every single one that we meet. Because an audience is something that you entertain, but an army is something that you train. An audience draws a line, but an army sets a bar, sets a standard. An audience is passive, but an army is engaged. The church of Jesus Christ is not an audience for us to perform to. It is a body to be filled with the power and the person and the presence of the Holy Spirit. And so like Life Center on Pentecost Sunday, we need a move. And there's a three-word prayer that if together we pray with humility, with repentance, with confession, and with honesty, God will move. And during worship, Angela, Pastor Angela already prayed this prayer. It's three words. And if you pray it with humility, it is Holy Spirit, come, or come, Holy Spirit. So all together right now, let's pray with humility, with confession, with urgency, with honesty. Let's pray for a fresh infilling in our hearts, in our homes, in our churches, in our city, and in our nation and world. Together, let's pray on this Pentecost Sunday. Come, Holy Spirit, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. May God bless you and may he keep you.